This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50, where we provide information. I don't know who we is. I provide information with my guests through my guests that you may not hear in the mainstream media, but I think is really important, especially what you're going to hear today from my guest, Martha Tettenborn. Martha, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thanks so much. Martha is a cancer survivor. I guess that is the common phrase. Do you you like that phrase, survivor? I've come to accept it because there's so many other ones that I don't like. (laughs) Um, I consider cancer was a journey. And yeah. I was a journeyer in that, but yeah, that, that, that doesn't really suit three years later. So yeah, I get you. So it's not so unusual that somebody uh, has had cancer these days. Sadly, uh, the numbers are pretty staggering. But what's interesting and different and why I wanted to have Martha on is that she discovered, she's an RD. I will tell you about her in just a second. But she discovered a way to provide her body with what it needed to sustain her through chemo and the healing process after. And one of the things that she discovered and talks about in her book, Hacking Chemo, is that most of what traditional medicine is telling people who have cancer to do is not helping their cells rid themselves of cancer and sustain themselves through the chemo journey if they have to have chemo or radiation. So Martha is an RD, that's a registered dietitian. And as a chef, I worked many years ago for a heart surgeon and to develop the menu, he brought in an RD and I was horrified. I thought, I'll never be able to work with this person. It's gonna be all terrible and no butter. And <laughs> she was terrific. We're still friends 40 years later and she wasn't. She loved good food. So I'm sure that you're one of those people from reading your book and the recipes and stuff that actually likes good food and has an open mind about what that means. Certainly butter, oh yeah. butter. <laughs> You are a certified primal health coach, which I'm assuming is primal as in the way we eat. Yes, low yep. carb, um, ancestral nutrition, ancestral health sort of principles. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you've been doing this for 30 years in various aspects of nutrition, and you have a private practice where you promote low carb, uh, healthy fat lifestyle. And that's for general health, right? It's not just for people who are sick with something, but we're going to get into like what happens after you're feeling better. So you can learn more about Martha on her website and we'll get to that in a minute. But what I want to ask you to do, Martha, is tell us how you discovered that you had cancer and where, like what happened in that moment for you? Yeah, it was pretty wild, actually. I was 58 years old, healthy as a horse, nothing ached. I take zero medications. I'd been eating moderate, low carb you know, dabbling in keto and other fasting and all sorts of other practices because I'm a big believer in the N equals one experiment. Um, but exercise is not something I've ever really enjoyed a lot. I What I've discovered over years is that I am an 
basically a non-exerciser who really likes to run long and slow. So running was really the only thing that sparked a passion in me. And so that's what I would do. But three years ago, this week, actually, July, I got a text message from one of my best friends, one of my oldest, like grade from grade seven friends that I see every year. And she said, so what are you up to on your plank? And because um, she'd been aiming for a two minute plank, she'd been doing a, a, some serious training over the winter with a specific goal in mind. And so I laid down on the floor to do a plank because I hadn't done one in a while. And um, the moment I laid down, there was something in my belly that I was, it felt like an egg, like, like I was laying on a bulge. And I, there's just no other reason in my life that I tend to lay down on my belly. I don't sleep on my belly. I don't have grandchildren or puppies or, you know. So anyways, I, I immediately got up and called the doctor. And a few days later, got in for a, um, an exam. And a few days after that, I had an ultrasound and it showed that I had a really enormous ovarian cyst. And the cyst just looked like a big bag of fluid. Um, so they did some blood work to see, you know, just to screen for cancer. And the value that came back was just above the normal range. It wasn't very far out. And, and it's not considered a really great test anyway. So nobody thought it was cancer. It was summer. So, you know, people are on holidays and stuff. And it took about two months before I had the cyst uh, removed surgically through a small laparoscopic incision. So it was my choice because there was no chance of it being cancer um, to have it ruptured. And then the deflated cyst pulled out through this little incision. And so I had that done um, late September that year. And six days later, they called me and said, surgeon wants to see you come tomorrow morning mm, bring your husband when it's that fast right no and the, the bring your husband part it was like oh yeah oh shit <laughs> and yeah so i mean I, I i work in healthcare i knew what that meant right away and uh yeah that's what it was i was very very fortunate that the tumor was a stage one because 75 percent of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are diagnosed at stage three or stage four. So it is considered a very dangerous cancer, mainly for that reason. And because your ovaries are buried so deep inside you, the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very nondescript um, and nonspecific. So there are things like cramping and early satiety and bloating and pressure in your abdomen and things that a lot of women just write off as stress or menopause or getting older or something and we don't tend to take good enough care of ourselves sometimes or listen to our bodies well enough and so people ignore the those little niggly whispery sort of symptoms until it's too late luckily my cyst was 16 centimeters when they found it and it kept growing the during that two months between when i found it and when it was removed by the time they took it out, they took off a liter and a half of fluid. Wow. Yeah, that's like a quart and a half in your yeah. And um, I mean, I had the, the anesthesiologist come in and pat me on the shoulder and go, liter and a half of fluid, like, wow, like I'd won some sort of a prize or something. <laughs> this was in the recovery room. Had <laughs> a girl. Yeah, yeah, I think I made a record or something. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah, so that was kind of how the journey started. Um, 
it came at me completely out of the blue. And I just have generally been so well that it really knocked me back because I, I had no, it, it really knocked into my sense of identity as being a, a healthy person. And mm. both personally and professionally, that was my persona. I was, you know, all about awesome aging and helping people, you know, eat well to grow old in an awesome way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really, it was hard. I can't even imagine. Now you do have, I'm going to go to the genetics for just a second, because there is some science that says that um, genetically, if there's cancer in the family, we're more prone to have another gene that might show up generations later, or one generation or so. And you did have cancer in your family. It was your mom, yeah? Yes. My mother had premenopausal breast cancer. She had a breast removed when she was 45. She was a very late bloomer, so I was only nine years old when that happened. And she died when she was 55, so I was not quite 19 years old. Now, my mother is an outlier in her family. There is no other cancer in her family. Everyone else, her, her two sisters are pushing 90 and over 90 and still oh. alive and kicking. And her brothers are well, and, and her mother lived to be 94, and her aunt lived to be 96, and was still driving across the country to California every, <laughs> from Ontario, from, you know, <laughs> every year with her fourth husband. Like, you know, it was... It was an outlier situation, mm. but my mother had polio when she was seven in the 1930s. And mm. who knows what they did to that young yeah. body in, you know, in her childhood and her young teen years as she went through surgeries for deformities in her back and the withered leg and all that stuff. So I really never considered myself to be at increased risk because of my mother's history she was someone who went through a really different medical life than, than any of her family. So I didn't consider that a problem at all, yeah. which is another reason why it came at me out of the blue. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. And then as so many of us would do, but especially since you're a person who's in science and health, you took to Dr. Google. Absolutely. To know everything about your diagnosis. And that was where this whole leading you to the right nutrition for cancer recovery started. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Of course, I went to Dr. Google the moment I found the bulge in my belly. And by oh. the time I saw my doctor five days later, I had determined I had uterine fibroids or something. And I was wrong. But once I got the cancer diagnosis, I started back into the research. And, you know, having already left conventional wisdom behind in terms of my profession, having already done the low carb um, certification and really firmly believing in root, what they call root cause medicine. So not just treating symptoms, but looking for what is the root cause that caused this physiological process to happen. And so I took to Dr. Google again, or at least uh, the medical research, PubMed, all that kind of stuff to try and find why this would have happened and what could be done about it. And what I found just kind of blew my mind because it turns out that there's, you know, everything about cancer that sort of the general public knows about and that medical science has focused on for the last 60, 70 years has been this genetic aspect of it, the damaged DNA and so on. And they try and get treatments that impact on the damaged DNA. They're even trying targeted things, but we haven't been very successful. You know, we don't have 
we don't have really a lot better chemo or radiation or surgery success than we had before. But it turns out that the metabolism of cancer to cells or cancer tumors is different, that the actual way that they burn fuel is different than healthy cells. And anytime you're talking about metabolism or fueling your body, then you're back to nutrition because that's how we fuel our body. And I knew nothing about this. I mean, I've been a dietitian for 35 freaking years and I didn't know that there was anything that we could do about cancer. Mm. And that pissed me off, really. Why not? <laughs> you know? Exactly. That's why we have this podcast. Why aren't people being told these things? Yeah, yeah. Which is why I started the blog and wrote the book. And it's like, people need to know this. People need to know that they have something they can do every time they put food in their mouth that makes a difference in their, their health and their prognosis. Mm. Yeah, and prognosis. That's a good word. I was just looking down at your book. Because in the book, you say you gradually became aware of scientific undercurrent of information about the fact that cancer has its own unique metabolism. So on top of our bodies having metabolism, cancer acts differently and that there were possible nutritional interventions that could impact it. Cancer is a greedy hog when it comes to glucose uptake from the blood and its exaggerated rate of metabolism has been known for a long time. Again, that pisses me off when I read that. We know this stuff. Somebody knows it that is respectful, respectable in yep. the science world. And yet, as you go on to say, like so many other things, the big industries that control what people eat or suggestively control, market to control what people eat, have a vested interest in keeping us eating the wrong thing. So what is the wrong thing? What was your discovery? Glucose was probably the biggest one. So glucose is the chemical term for sugar. It's the form of sugar that's in your blood. And we have, a, we have a system for controlling how much sugar is in our blood using a hormone called insulin. And so when you consume sugar, your body senses that. We have like a thermostatic sensor and we release insulin. And insulin's job is to move the sugar out of the blood into the places where it needs to be. So some sugar will go into, for example, muscle cells or any of our cells that require energy using the, the insulin plugs into the, the cell membrane and allows the sugar to go into the cell to be burned for fuel immediately. If there's more sugar than we can use, then the extra goes to the liver and the liver will package it up as fat, triglyceride. It actually turns it into storage fat and then sends it out into your bloodstream to be shipped to the storage sites. And we all usually know where our storage sites are, right? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the really interesting things that I found in this journey is that at any given moment, the total amount of sugar that you have in your entire bloodstream, which is like 10 liters or something of, of fluid, of blood, is about one teaspoon. Wow. Yeah, I know. Like, so when you think about sitting down with a Slurpee or, you know, or a, a foot long banana or an ice cream sundae or something, and how much sugar is in those things, you know, even a can of soda, it's just stunning that, that at any given moment, we're only using about a teaspoon of sugar mm. in, our, in our entire system. So, you know, you, you whack in there like 30 teaspoons worth of sugar in some great huge, you know, feast or pig out or something. And yeah, all of that cannot be dealt with easily. Mm. So anyway, so going back to, to the cancer, 
it turns out that cancer has a damaged metabolic mechanism or machinery compared to a healthy cell. And it preferentially chooses to use only glucose. In fact, it can, for the most part, only use glucose or glutamine, which is one of the amino acids. But glucose is the main one. And cancer cells will have extra um, insulin receptors on their surface of their cell to attract more glucose in because they need to burn that. And they burn it in a different way and it's less efficient than how healthy cells burn glucose. So they get less energy per glucose molecule, but they get it faster. It's a very quick, it's a very rapid turnover. It's the same sort of system that we use um, in the sort of fight or flight response where like, boom, instant energy. That's kind of what cancer is looking for all the time. And the other thing that's really important to know about cancer is that it has no ability to turn itself off. So healthy cells can upregulate or downregulate their energy needs based on the fuel supply that's available. So if you're, if you're starving or if you're fasting or even overnight when you're sleeping, your, your body's cells can quiet themselves down, just you know, go back to kind of a basic maintenance um, mode and not require as much energy. But cancer, one of the basic hallmarks of cancer is that it can't do that. They're always on, they're always hungry, and they're always hungry for glucose. So putting sugar into the system through what you eat will not only up your blood sugar, giving more fuel availability to cancer, but it also upregulates your body's release of insulin and another hormone called insulin-like growth factor. And those things help the cancer cells as well to get that extra glucose. So you know, nutritional interventions that keep the sugar level in your blood low and steady and the insulin level in your blood low and steady without the spikes and stuff or the chronic up will make it harder for cancer to get what it needs to grow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Two images came to mind. First was that of a junkie when you were talking about they need it, they need it, they have to have it. And then the picture got bigger almost to like the mob where there's a control that we have outside of us suggesting certain things would be good for us, like drugs, sugar, too much food. And it's this, so cancer cells are like junkies and they have found a way to always have what they need. Inadvertently, they didn't find a way, but somehow the powers that be with a lot of marketing dollars who provide food and, and recommend nutritional or not nutritional protocols for patients of any kind, diabetic, cancer, whatever it is. As you mentioned also in your book, when you read about or what you knew from uh, other cancer patients, what you heard the doctors recommend is to eat anything you can just to don't lose your weight, right? To, to keep your weight on, suck on candy, yeah. ginger ale. Everything you mentioned was sugar, 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 sugar. That's exactly what they taught us was the only thing they really taught us as dietitians about dealing with cancer was help them to not lose weight despite the side effects. So, you know, make sure there's lots of nutrient density there. There's lots of caloric density. So the example that we used to use is you could eat a piece of toast, just dry toast, 70 calories, right? Or you could take a piece of toast, you could put on the butter and the peanut butter and the honey. And then that one piece of toast is still just one piece of toast, but now it's 400 calories. And 
you know, that was the kind of, so the, the quantity stays small, but the, the density of calories was really high. And you would, one of the things you would use to accomplish that would be added sugars. Right. Because they're so nutrient dense, a tablespoon of honey. Calorie dense. There, there's no nutrients. Right. Sorry. Calorie dense, not calories. Dense. Right. Yeah. yeah. And That's calories cool. is how you keep your weight on, right? So tell us about, so now you, you have this diagnosis, you've decided you're going to have chemo. That's the right treatment for your kind of cancer. Tell us now how you navigated changing your diet or getting through it. You lost your hair. I remember you saying, so people listening, this is not a cure for, it's not prevention necessarily for losing your hair, but look at your hair is beautiful. Now it's back. (laughs) Thank you. It came back in curly. It was crazy. Oh, funny. Yeah. Most people do. And I did. I was curly like a poodle for um, a couple of months. Yeah, it was crazy. But uh, no, this is not a cure. This is a way of getting through it, basically. So it's an adjunct to traditional therapy. The uh, chemo is poison. It's basically a drug that's designed to target the cells that are showing signs of fast metabolism because cancer can't turn itself off, right? So it goes into your system and it looks for those those targets that say we're metabolizing quickly and that's what they hit. So as I was doing my kind of figuring out how I was going to deal with this, I looked at some research about, number one, how you can stress cancer cells. And that's where we got into the stuff with the low blood sugar, the low insulin, circulating insulin levels and, and that sort of stuff. But also, there was really good research out of a a lab in or a university in California, Dr. Walter Longo's research, that shows that by using fasting, you can actually calm down or quiet down your healthy cells. So not only are you stressing the cancer cells, but you are quieting down your healthy cells. I call it stealth mode. So it puts your healthy cells into stealth mode. And then when the chemo goes in, it doesn't find them because they're not metabolizing as rapidly. And so the chemo just kind of flies over top and heads for the cancer cells, which are going like, pick me, pick me, pick me, big red flashing lights on them because they're still metabolizing like crazy, right? They're also somewhat stressed because they haven't been able to get as much fuel as they wanted. So they're already in a more vulnerable position for the chemo to hit them. And what Dr. Longo proved with his research is that number one, fasting does not negate the effect of chemo in any way. If anything, it potentiates it. It makes it more um, potent. And secondly, that people experience reduced side effects when they're fasting because the healthy cells aren't impacted by the chemo drugs the same way. In an adult, Pediatrics is another whole world, and I don't deal with that. But in an adult, we don't have very many parts of our body that are in active growth phase at any one time. We Most of us is just in maintenance mode, but the parts that are still actively growing and producing new cells all the time are our hair, right? Because we're constantly producing hair. And um, the the... Inside of our bone marrow, where we produce all of our red and white blood cells and our, a lot of our um, platelets, like a lot of the blood component cells are produced in our bone marrow. So that's a growth area where we're always producing new cells. The lining of our digestive tract, anywhere where we have mucous membranes, where there's cells sloughing off and new cells being produced all the time, those are growth areas. 
And so those are the, the parts that are hit up the most by these chemo drugs when you, when you talk about side effects, right? Particularly mouth sores, nausea, throwing up, bowel issues, that sort of stuff. Those ones, and that's, again, because of the digestive tract. What I found with my chemo experience um, with fasting is that I had almost zero nausea. I never threw up, not once in six treatments. I had minimal in terms of any sort of muscle and joint aches. I had no peripheral neuropathy, and I was terrified of getting peripheral neuropathy. Where you Tell people what that means. It means nerve damage that leaves you with tingling or numbness or chronic pain in your particular extremities, hands and feet. Okay. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm a knitter. <laughs> and I type, you know, for my life, like my career and stuff. And I was terrified of losing that. So none of that happened to me. The second week chemo effects, which because the drugs go in and, and they, my drugs anyways, were every three weeks. And that's because they, they actually have a three week mechanism of, of action. And so the second week effects were things like the bone marrow suppression and the hair loss. And so basically by the end of your second week, after your very first treatment, that's when your hair starts falling out. And it just keeps falling out. People don't tell you this. And I'll tell you for your readers, you lose hair everywhere. Uh, okay. People only think about this. Right. You lose your eyebrows, your eyelashes, your pubes, <laughs> lose that little fuzz on your cheeks. I didn't have to deal with my, br my brunette mustache for a whole like five or six months. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So people don't tell you that kind of stuff. You only think no. about the hair on your head, right? <laughs> wow. You're like a hairless cat almost, it sounds. I look like a five-year-old. Uh, a bald five-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of fasting were you doing? Intermittent or actual days where you didn't eat? So the fasting that I did was an extended fast for 72 hours. Now that was, again, based on Dr. Longo's work. I, I read a lot of his case studies and a lot of things. And, and what I sort of determined was that I was going to fast for about 36 hours prior to the start of my chemo. That was to downregulate my healthy cells. Then I fasted for 24 hours after my chemo. And that was to keep everything low while that active fresh drug was in my system. Okay. My chemo treatment was about 12 hours. Like it was, I, I spent long days at the at the chemo clinic. I was probably about seven or eight hours actually in the chemo chair. I had two drugs and one of them I chose to do intraperitoneally, which means they put a port under my skin on my rib cage and there was a tube that ran down and actually poured the chemo drug right into my lower abdomen, like into my pelvic cavity. Because mm -hmm. the kind of cancer that I had, high grade serous carcinoma, has like these sticky cells that like this, they, they don't escape into your bloodstream and your lymph system as much as some other cancers, but they like to stick to things in your pelvic cavity. So it made sense to put the drug right where the, the chance of them sticking was. Mm -hmm. And so I had one IV um, in my, usually in my arm. And then the, once they took that out, then they would start, they would access the port and they would start the second drug. So yeah, they were long, long days. And I lived three hours. On the day of the Medicaid, did you eat on the day of chemo? So we've no. got 36 wow. hours before. So basically for three and a half days, you haven't eaten. Three days, yeah. 72 hours is what I ended up doing. Okay. So my chemos were always Thursday. 
I would start, I would eat supper Tuesday night. I would fast through Wednesday. Wednesday night, we would drive down to London. It was three hours away. And it was winter in central Ontario. So you went down the night before and stayed in a hotel. And then all day Wednesday, or all day Thursday at the chemo center, drive home Thursday night. And then Friday, I would be, um, I would have supper that night. So yeah, three full days, 72 hours. I would, it, it wasn't a water fast. It was a supported fast. So I would use coffee, black coffee, which is how I drink my coffee anyway. So it wasn't any hardship. Tea, herbal tea, water. Um, and usually over the whole 72 hours, I'd have about three cups of bone broth. Okay. So yeah, that usually on the Wednesday, because Wednesday I was feeling really good. And so I was, I, you know, was experiencing some hunger. And so the bone broth really helped with that. By the time you're doing chemo, you're not so hungry. The next day, you're not so hungry. So those days really weren't a problem. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and then where, so now outside of those every three weeks, so now we have the fasting period and then you have life after you, you know, start to feel a little better. Is this yeah. where you, I mean, you were already doing low carb. You said you were dabbling in keto. Is this now the time where you went more into the keto? Oh, absolutely. Type of yeah. Yeah, I, I was hardcore keto, probably 20 to 25 grams of carbohydrate a day at the most mm -hmm. um, for the entire time that I was in chemotherapy. I'm already well fat adapted because I've been eating this way for several years. So it really wasn't that big a hardship. I, and I have a blood meter, a little blood sugar ketone meter. So I was able to check and make sure that I, I was in ketosis and stayed in ketosis. The fasting would drop me deeper into ketosis, which was great. And then I'd have to take dexamethasone, which is a cortisone, uh, corticosteroid, the night before chemo. And that would shoot my blood sugar right up into diabetic range, practically, even though I was still deep in ketosis. It was kind of crazy watching my blood sugars do these things. But it was important because it's an anti-inflammatory, right. you know, prior to them putting the chemo in. So, yeah. And I want to bring up something that um, when you say that this drug shot your blood sugar, I think... Uh, some listeners may not know that other things besides food can put our blood sugar up. Not all of them bad. Exercise can, a poor yeah. night's sleep can, all different kinds of things. Medication, obviously. So when we talk about balancing our blood sugar, which I talk about a lot, we have to take into, consider into consideration basically everything in our lives impacts yeah. us hormonally, which impacts the insulin balance and the blood sugar. So then you said you were already fat adapted. Let's step back for one second. That to me is the most delicious way to eat anyway. I don't know how people think that fat is scary and they don't want to do it. But anyway, tell people what uh, being in ketosis means. What is that? Okay. So we are very comfortable. Our, our bodies are very comfortable burning a variety of fuels. It's part of why we are the most successful species on the planet, really. We burn glucose or blood sugar. But it's not, it's a great ready fuel, but it's not the one that we have to have. And, and that's where a lot of medical science has gone, really gone wrong in the last hundred years. Prior to that, people knew that you burned fat and that it was good. We also are quite capable of burning fatty acids, which your body will dig into if you don't have enough blood sugar around or if you've gone longer between meals. Nature designed us to carry tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of surplus calories in our fat stores. Even the thinnest of us have fat stores. 
And so we access those in between meals when we need to. If we are eating a really low intake of carbohydrates, which is sugars and starches, over um, a longer period of time, then we have the ability in our liver to create a couple of things. We have the ability to create the glucose that certain parts of our body require, the blood sugar. We created our, um, they call it gluconeogenesis, which is new creation of glucose, basically. That's the Latin term for it. But we just, we build what we need, right? And that's why it's never been necessary to actually eat carbohydrates because your body will, will build exactly what those few cells that require glucose, we can build it. We're, we're capable of building it. But if we go a long time without much in the way of carbohydrate intake, then our bodies in our liver, again, will also break down some of the fatty acids into what's called ketone bodies, and they provide an alternate fuel. The cool thing about ketone bodies is that they're water soluble, like glucose, and unlike fatty acids. And because they're water soluble, they can cross the blood brain barrier and get into the brain and supply fuel for the brain. And the brain actually really likes running on or on uh, ketones. It, it does it very well, which is why ketogenic diets have been used to treat epilepsy in children for over 100 years, hmm. because ketones are great brain fuel. We don't have to run our brain on glucose. In fact, often it runs better on ketones. Mm. Yeah. So a ketogenic diet is just a diet that is low enough in carbohydrates to induce ketosis or to make your body produce ketones. It isn't any particular kind of food. A ketogenic diet could be just low in carbohydrates, but a full variety of foods. It could be it could be a vegetarian ketogenic diet. It could be an all meat diet, like the carnivore diet. It could be fasting. Fasting is it is produces ketones. So, you know, ketogenic diet just means what it's doing in your body. It doesn't mean a particular list of foods. And, oh, and a lot of people are confused about that. Yeah, that's a great distinction because I think when usually when somebody wants to start a diet, there's a book out there for that. And so, we go and get the book and the book is going to tell us what to eat. So we think that that is the actual diet, the, it yeah. is the diet in a way, but it's not what the body is seeing and benefiting from or, or not depending on the diet. So you, you had success with this. I think I remember when we had a pre-call, you told me that you really only lost one day. Like you didn't go into those terrible couple of days after chemo, not being able to get out of bed. Never. You were able to go to work if you wanted to, you know, whatever yeah. you did. Yeah. And I, would say I, would, that's different. I would have three or four kind of what I called low energy days. Mm -hmm. I'd be in my recliner in the living room. I was never horizontal, never like those days where you couldn't get out of bed or, you know, like say I never threw up. I never missed a meal that I didn't intentionally miss like during mm -hmm. fasting I never missed making a meal. I mean, I'm, I'm the cook in my house and I like it that way. And sometimes it was just bacon and eggs and then I'd go climb back into my chair. But it was not what was expected for the kind of chemo that I was having. Mm. And the other cool thing is that every cycle I went through was a little easier than the one before. And that's the opposite of what's expected with chemo. Usually the damage is cumulative. And each time you have a, a treatment, it's a little rougher than the one before. And I went the other way. I ended up 
they give you drugs for after chemo, you know, nausea drugs, more corticosteroids to keep inflammation down, that kind of stuff. And as each cycle went on, I used less and less of the post chemo drugs until the last cycle. I think I might've taken them the night I got home, like, so the day of chemo, but I didn't take the day two drugs and I didn't take the day three drugs. Like I just, I didn't need them. It was amazing. And after about like day five or so, I'd feel my energy coming back up. And then I'd have two weeks of basically normal. Mm. I mean, I wasn't running marathons or anything, but you know, I was working, I was enjoying life, I had energy to do things. We went snowshoeing, weren't very fast, but we went snowshoeing. That's a lot of calorie burning right there. Yeah. I love snowshoeing. Um, (laughs) I don't want to shortchange your journey by not including the inner work, the spiritual side of this journey for you. So we have, you did all your research, you got the diet sorted out, you did everything that was what you said would be helpful for you. And that's, I have to acknowledge that you took that on in such a way and you fasted and you fasted, right? You did what you had read might help you. I know sometimes my girlfriends and I have talked like, if you got a diagnosis and you had to change your diet and change everything and give up wine and give up this, would you do it? And I don't think there's one of us who has said, oh, absolutely. We're like, yeah, I think I would, right? Well, you don't know until you get there. But anyway, I honor that, that you took that. But there was also the side of a healthy person getting, you know, this diagnosis, which is very scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any C word diagnosis is scary. And you had to do some inner work. Oh, absolutely. I identified as a very healthy person, both, let's say, both personally and professionally. And it knocked my identity for a loop when I had to acknowledge that I had cancer. And then I had to tell people mm. <laughs> because uh, I had to tell my, my loved ones, my kids, my coworkers, my best friends. And that was hard because, first of all, you have to come to terms with it inside yourself and then you have to tell the people that you love and then you have to and, and that's something that you don't do like over the phone or you know if, if you can help it you do it in person if you can and when you tell somebody then they have a response to that and you have to absorb the energy from that response and I found that really hard like I would be I have cancer and the person would kind of go ah, you know or they or whatever. And then I'd have to kind of be, but it's okay. It's stage one. And you know, like this is going to be okay. And like, so I'm, I'm, I'm comforting them Mm. sort of thing. Right. And then the other thing is that some people will, will back away out of your life when you go through something like this and other people will step forward into your life that you didn't expect, Mm. you know, and I couldn't fault anybody for that because you don't know what their own personal history is with cancer. They might've lost a loved one. They might've been through it themselves. Who knows if you don't know them that well, you know, some people are just terrified by that or they don't know how to deal with somebody who's not a hundred percent. I mean, I got looking pretty weird by the end of this, right? So, you know, no eyebrows wearing a toque all I had a, a hat on all winter at work, <laughs> like a knitted toque all winter. And so you can't fault people for how they respond to your diagnosis. You just have to, you just have to take it. And I had to become more vulnerable and more willing to accept help, which is hard for me because I'm the one that's in control of my own life. Thank you very much. And 
having had a sick mother, I, I've looked at this in, in myself in the past, right? Having had a mother that was quite ill through my teen years and having to step up and take over the house and, and not have anybody to fuss over me and that kind of stuff. I've struggled with that all my life. You know, my friends, mothers want to like mother me and they want to, you know, I had a, a friend in university. I went on holidays with her. Her mother wanted to French braid my hair and it's like, leave me alone. <laughs> Don't butter my toast. I'll butter it myself. You know, it was that kind of thing. So I had to become vulnerable and willing to accept help. And that was hard. Mm. But I decided early on that I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be a victim, you know, a victim of cancer. I knew right away that I wanted to be an active partner in my own care. And that's why I went the route I did with, you know, the research and stuff. I also knew that I didn't want to be a warrior. I didn't want to be, a, you know, in a battle with cancer. Because being battle ready all the time is really exhausting mm. and it's stress inducing and all those stress hormones that are not great for your, your body. I wanted to be more at peace. So I, I really did the inner, as you say, the inner work. I, um, I really decided I was going to approach cancer from the position of love and self-love. And I would go to bed every night and I would do, you know, that, that hand thing where you make a heart with your hand sort of thing. I would put that on my lower belly, uh, you know, over my, my incision or whatever. And I would just like focus love on my own belly. Mm. Because what I really realized was that cancer isn't some foreign invader that has, you know, got into my body and is wrecking havoc from the outside. It's actually me. It's my own cells. They're misguided. They've gone down the wrong path, but they're still me. Mm. I needed to let them go. I need them to go away, but I, but I couldn't do it from a position of, of hate or anger or any of those things. Those aren't, those aren't self-serving emotions. They, yeah. don't, they don't get you to where you need to be. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Do you think it softened you overall? I mean, I see, I feel like a little, some of your like resistance to being mothered or helped or this and being so in charge maybe had to be let go. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it did. It, like I say, it knocked down my, my defenses a little bit for being vulnerable and, and empathy for other people and what they go through mm -hmm. because I'd been so healthy. I really sometimes was a, I don't know whether judgmental is the right term, but I didn't maybe have the same understanding of what other people go through when they're in a health crisis or, or especially a chronic health crisis, you know, because I, I could look at people and kind of go, oh man, you're doing that to yourself. Like, why are you doing that? You know, but now I, I think I, yeah, I'm softer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it might benefit you and, you know, obviously in your relationships that are close to you, but as you said, more empathy for the people that you work with from a clinical point of view. Yeah. And, and my family, I have a, I have an adult developmentally challenged child. And so I had to support him to understand what I was going through mm. because it was extra hard for him. Oh. And of course, that's not one of the hats that you get to take off and give away when you, a cancer diagnosis comes into your life. I gave away a whole lot of other things that, you know, responsibilities and stuff, but I'm still mom. And that, how I approached that was really challenging too. 
I would imagine so. Yeah. I, he came through it with flying colors. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's been three years, you say? Three years this week since I found the cyst and, and two years, just a little over two years since I finished chemo. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're now a committed ketogenic eater? Well, you know, I, no, not, I, don't, I don't try and stay in ketosis all the okay. time. I, um, I, I follow a moderate, clean, low-carb lifestyle. There's still room in my life for the occasional homemade ice cream at the little general store down the road, um, but it probably happens three times a summer, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and only if I rode my bike the, the 30 <laughs> kilometers to get there, that's when I let myself have ice cream. <laughs> wow. You know, sushi once in a while. Like, so yeah, there's, there's a... Life has to happen and it has to be filled with joy. I'm not willing to, um, to allow this to, to cut back on the joy in my life. Yeah. So you find a balance. But I mean, I, I choose to eat clean for the most part. I, I eat local. I'm very lucky to live in a rural area where I can stop in at the farmer's farm gate store, literally on my way home from work and pick up fresh chicken, fresh beef, you know, that kind of stuff. And I eat organic. If I do eat grains, I and my husband still eats grains, so we have the bread and cereal and stuff in the house, and and I make sure it's organic to stay away from the pesticides and herbicide mm-hmm. residues and stuff. You know, life's too short to be miserable um, oh, yeah. and too precious. So <laughs> you got to find a balance. Yeah, I like that idea of not being too precious. Sometimes I think things take on this guru status, you know, the idea of I'm keto, I'm vegan, I'm this, and I'm not making fun of anybody who associates themselves or or names themselves that way. All I'm saying is there are some voices out there, proponents of these things, and the many others that I didn't mention, making them sound precious and desirable when in fact, there's no one way to be healthy. No, there is. You found what works for you, Martha. And there's no, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any one way that you have to do it every single day in any one way either. Yeah. You know? I'll eat, you know, the choices I make will end up putting me into ketosis one day, but then, you know, three days later, I'm no longer in ketosis because I've made a different choice because that's just, I, I take each day as it comes, mm. but I have a basic set of parameters that say, you know, I don't eat pop. I don't eat sugar. I stay away from hydrogenated vegetable oils, you know, and that doesn't mean that a couple of times a year, if I get the opportunity, I eat fresh cut French fries from some little, you know, guy that I've watched him cut the potatoes and yeah, yeah the oil sucks. The oil is terrible, but you know, it's once, right? Right. And it's not going to kill you that once, you know, no. we have this, you know, if 99% or even 90% of what we do is clean and supportive of a healthy body, then those times that we add something else in, I think the body has a better chance of processing it without too much damage. And then we go back to, you know, and and then you, yeah, you make, and, and enjoy every bit of it. If you're going to step off the beaten path, make sure that it's something that you're truly going to savor and relish and enjoy. Yeah. And I'm with you on the ice cream in summer. There are certain days where it's gotten to be 90 something and it's, you know, there's a cute little place down the road. My husband and I look at each other. Is it an ice cream day? Yes, it is. And we get, you know, little ice cream and it's so delightful and I'm so yeah. happy. Yeah. It's like the child size cone. That's all you need. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, Martha, tell people how they can find you. I know your book is on Amazon. It's called Hacking Chemo. 
And you have a website? I do. The website is just my name, MarthaTettenborn.com. And social, yeah. you're on Instagram and Facebook and all that. Not Instagram. I never got the hang of Instagram, oh. but I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook page called Powerful Beyond Measure. Oh, nice. And um, that was originally supposed to be the name of the book, but it turns out that it was taken. And so my current name is way better. So yeah, on the website, there's my blog, there's links to the book, there's information about how people can work with me if they're interested in working on a more personal basis. There's links to a course that I've put up on Udemy that has, you know, sort of the the contents of the book in terms of how to go through the fasting protocol and all that kind of stuff. I am doing some cancer coaching. I call myself the cancer doula. (laughs) <laughs> and so that information for how to contact me is on the website as well. And there's a whole list of references there as well. If anyone's interested in following up the science as there also is in the back of the book. Yeah, this is just, as I told uh, Martha, I didn't get through every single page of the book yet, but I'm a person who likes references <laughs> and she has not only all of this, you know, where she got the information from citations, but the articles, research articles. So let's just say you're in chapter four and you say, oh, I wonder what, what does she mean by that? Well, there's probably an article explaining it in the back of the book. So good job on the book. It's great. And I thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to have you. And if anybody feels like they need a little support and they're starting their cancer journey or even getting, you're already in it and you know you need support, just reach out to Martha, read some of her stuff, see if she can help you. It's, uh, it's hard to ask for help sometimes, right, Martha? But It'll yeah, be <laughs> for sure. Start with the book. The book has just about everything. In fact, you know, you can go to the blog and the very first blog post I ever did is the chemo fasting protocol, the actual, you know, 72 hour fast sort of plan. Oh, good. Like it's all free on there. So, yeah. but the book has a lot more and it's got, the book's got recipes and the blog has recipes and yeah, comfort food recipes. Oh, good. Sounds yeah. like you need comfort during those times like chemo. Totally. Thanks again. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again next week with another episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50. Be well till then. Hey, peeps, before you run, in case you're not 100% sure you're doing everything you can to age as well as you can, which means you'll feel better longer, you might want to check out my Age Better Lifestyle Assessment. It will give us a clear picture of where you are now and what small changes you might want or need to make to improve how you feel, how you look, and how you age. Check it out at rebelliouswellnessover50.com in the Work With Greg section. Thanks.